Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It seems that every day as Trump makes another seemingly horrible comment, we ask ourselves, how did this happen? Millions of words have been spilled trying to answer that question. Fascism, bigotry, populism, social and cultural issues have all been trotted out. And so too has the jingoistic nationalism that seems to be rampant in Trump's base. All as dislocation, change, and creative destruction cause people to seek solace in their most fundamental national tribe. But is the left making a mistake by rejecting nationalism out of hand? Or is there a place for nationalism and national identity, even as one believes in immigration, open borders, trade, and globalization? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, John Judas. John Judas is editor-at-large at Talking Points Memo. He's the author of eight previous books, including The Populist Explosion. He's written for numerous publications, and his most recent work is The Nationalist Revival, Trade, Immigration, and the Revolt Against Globalization. John Judas, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be there. I wish I was physically there as well as <laughs> simply over the phone. <laughs> One of the things that, that you talk about is that, that nationalism, we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss it, that it really is a kind of essential ingredient for political democracy. Talk about that first. Yeah, well, let, let's talk about national identity, about the idea that we are all, are all part of a we as opposed to a they. That kind of feeling, that sentiment, is essential to democracy. It's essential in this way that you, you have to assume as a citizen, you have to grant another person whom you don't know, you never set eyes upon, an equal role in determining the fate of your country uh, through, you know, through elections. So it's, it's absolutely essential that you have that sense of we, that we're all one, that we're all part of the same country. If you think about the modern welfare state, you pay taxes. When you pay those taxes, you know that some of them are going to go for some, let's say, some guy in Orlando, Florida, who's disabled, or some woman in Reno, Nevada, who's lost her job and needs unemployment compensation. When you pay taxes, you know that it's going to go for somebody like that, even though you, you have no idea who they are, you've never met them. Uh, they don't, they're not related to you at all, but you're willing to do it because you're part of the same nation. If you don't have that feeling, if you start to feel that people are here illegitimately, for instance, or if you start to feel that you're part of a separate country within a country, then the nation begins to break down and democracy and the modern welfare state uh, began, began to disintegrate. And, you know, that's, that's hard. We, we see that happening most dramatically in a country like Spain, but uh, it's happening all, you know, all over Europe and the United States where there is doubt about who is really legitimate, who is part of the nation. What about how that works in the other direction, essentially, that you're less concerned about whether it's going for somebody in Orlando, Florida, or to help somebody in Botswana? That, that, that we think of ourselves as global citizens as opposed to this nationalistic identity? Well, he, he, here's what I would say, is that for democracies to function, there has to be this very basic we, this very basic sense that we are all part of a nation. We can decide to give aid to other countries. 
We can decide that we're worried about uh, somebody in Central America. But in order to make that case, what generally has to happen is that legislators, politicians have to argue that it's in our national interest to do so. Now, there are kind of, you know, sort of freaky people on the on the very extremes of politics, uh, both on the right and the left, who don't recognize, you know, nation. I'm not really an American. I'm something else. Uh, but for, you know, the great, great majority of people, the national identity comes first in these kind of political determinations. And if it doesn't, then we're in real trouble as a country. Talk about the degree, though, to which it has given rise to a kind of tribalism these days, It mostly coming out of fear in a lot of regards, coming out of so much change happening, and that that tribalism is not having the desired impact with respect to defining that national identity. Yeah, well, let, let's, let's, let me make a few distinctions. The, the first thing to say is that, that that nationalism by itself and what I'm talking about can appear on the left, center, and the right. It doesn't have to be a Donald Trump. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was a nationalist. Theodore Roosevelt was a nationalist. Charles de Gaulle, Winston Churchill. Uh, but so also so was Hitler and so was Mussolini and so was George Wallace. Again, it, it depends how the, the idea of the nation is framed. So uh, we don't start with the idea that nationalism is something bad. What we start with is the idea that it can take the different kinds of forms on the left, center, and the right. Uh, what we've seen in the last uh, you know, 20, 30 years is the, the rise and really predominance of a certain kind of explicit nationalism us versus them politics, that is primarily on the right, that primarily differentiates between a us and a them, which consists of whatever, you know, illegal immigrants, uh, Mexican rapists, uh, Muslims, um, all kinds of underdog groups, you would say, uh, rather than say, uh, a, a group banding together as a nation, as we did in World War II, to to you know fight the Germans. That's a different kind of nationalism, and that's that's a nationalism that really isn't on the right wing, and that's you know commendable and necessary. So I think that's the distinction that I'm that I'm trying to make. To what extent does nationalism work better? when there's a common enemy. And you think back, I mean, you use the example of World War II, but there's also an example of the the sort of positive nationalistic feeling that came after 9-11. Yeah, exactly. You know, the the thing is that how we operate ordinarily, we don't have this kind of explicit nationalist politics where a party or a candidate says, you know, I'm going to put could America first. It really only happens at very specific times, at times of crisis. And, and so, again, like you say, at some times after when the country is seen as being under attack, it, it plays an extremely positive role. Um, I'd say in the last 20 or 30 years, more, more of a negative role. How has globalization, from an economic perspective primarily, 
driven the conversation about nationalism? Well, you know, we had uh, an idea after World War II that we really had to have these kind of international institutions to create stability, um, to, to create uh, greater prosperity. But what happened was that they began to break down in the 1970s. You had the end of Bretton Woods, which regulated the currency internationally. Um, then you had the end of the Cold War, which gave us a, a, a kind of utopian feeling that we could do anything. And beginning in, let's say, the 80s and the 90s, you had this utopian effort, which goes by the name of globalization. And the idea basically was that if you create a free market internationally, uh, just as you might have one nationally, if you eliminate trade barriers, if you let corporations move wherever they want, if you let the values of currency flow, float, and that means allowing speculators to do their thing, internationally, then you would have a kind of greater convergence among countries that would be stability and prosperity. And the result of that has been that we have had an increase on an average, just on an average in the standard of living internationally. But we've had greater inequality within nations. And what we've also had is these recurrent financial crises. Uh, beginning in the early 80s in, in Latin America, continuing through the Great Recession, and going on today in Turkey and Argentina that have destabilized societies and destroyed a lot of the gains that it, had previously existed. So in that sense, this globalization experiment has been a failure. And in the United States and Europe, what it's done and we have to think here particularly, of the, again, of the post-Cold War utopianism, the idea that if you let China into the WTO and Russia, what would happen would be they would eventually become liberal capitalist countries just like us. And you can go back in the 1990s and see these incredible uh, quotes from people uh, thinking that, that exactly that was going to happen. Well, it, you know, it didn't happen. What you got was a more unstable situation internationally and enormous losses uh, in the United States and Europe um, in terms of manufacturing, the hollowing out of the middle class and the creation of, a, of large groups of people, particularly in small towns and mid-sized towns, in the United States, mainly in the Midwest and the South, uh, that the British called uh, left, the left behinds and the left behinds become the principal base for this new right-wing nationalism. In many ways, though, th there's no put. Arguably, there's no putting that genie back in the bottle at this point. That that globalism and the free flow of money around the world, essentially, and the free flow of products around the world, is here to stay. We have to define. It seems to me how we deal with these problems that that you've delineated within the context of a global marketplace. Well, I, I, you know, I disagree with that. And 
funny enough, too, both the right-wingers and the, the left-wingers who are, have, again, I think, understand part of this nationalism, the Bernie Sanders uh, would disagree, too. For instance, the globalization has unleashed this race to the bottom in terms of taxes. Can we have the lowest corporate taxes so we can uh, beat out the other country? It's created this race to the bottom in terms of wages. Uh, you know, let's pay lower wages so our labor costs down, so our products are cheaper. I, I, I think national governments can assert their assert themselves and prevent that from happening. And oddly enough, that's what the Asian countries are doing: China, uh, South Korea, Japan. Um, it, it's just that, in a way, we're being played for suckers. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I won't deny that we really have to do something about China and the currency and the, all this kind of thing. But in certain respects, we have to learn from them and learn again how to how it's possible through a national government, through a fair tra- tax structure, uh, to reconstruct the country and to look after these people uh, who have been left behind over the last 10, 20 years uh, by the kind of forces that globalization has unleashed. One of the things that's happened from all this, though, is this extreme polarization. And you talk about this, that it's not just a question of of nationalists and, and liberals, but that it's more extreme than that between what you talk about as nationalists and, and kind of cosmopolitans. Explain that and the way in which all of this is feeding into an extremism that makes the problem so much harder to solve. Yeah, the, uh, I, I got a lot of the, that idea from a fellow named David Goodhart in Britain who wrote a book, The Road to Somewhere, explaining Brexit. And I think that a lot of what he writes there about Britain also applies to the United States, which is that there is a kind of division. And again, I'm going to use the words loosely between nationalists and cosmopolitans that has grown up in our society and more or less corresponds to the kind of economy that has arisen in the last 20, 30 years. Uh, again, small midtowns, manufacturing, mining, suffering, um, the met, big metro centers, finance, electronics, high tech, doing quite well. Uh, and the division is, is something goes something like this. I mean, we're all uh, nationalists. I'm people in, you know, in Washington, D.C., in San Francisco, in Manhattan, where I am now, when 9-11 struck, we're ready to go to uh, Afghanistan. I was, I was sad that I was too old not to volunteer. In other words, we still have the same heartstrings. But for us, we have many identities. College professor. We work for a company that we take pride in. We, we can live in numerous different places. We can live in Paris, London, uh, New York, Washington. We can be comfortable in all those places. So we have these kind of multiple identities. What's happened in the last 20, 30, 40 years is that, again, in parts of middle America, south, small towns, uh, mid-sized towns, uh, there has been a loss of all these older sources of identity. The company that somebody used to work for, the union that somebody used to belong to, the neighborhood, the pubs, 
This, you know, it used to be cities. It wasn't the cities plus suburbs. So that whole kind of, the, all those kind of identities have been stripped away. And what that leaves in its, ste- in its stead is much more emphasis on the nation as a source of pride. So, uh, again, it's not that, you know, nobody, that every people who live in, you know, wherever, San Francisco, Nampa, don't care about the United States. They do. But there's, it's different in degree and it's different in importance. And my town and my country and my flag and my home and my family and my way of life mean a lot more. Uh, in 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 the smaller towns and the towns that went for Trump than they do in let's say where I live or where you live. One of the the, the dangers of it seems to me of talking about it this way is that we conflate the the psychological and social issues with the economic issues, and and certainly they do come together. But but it seems like the driving force of both are somewhat different. Well, they, you know, I use the notion of way of life to try to uh, com- combine the two. I mean, well, you know, you could think of it this way. Using um, the, the Marxist decision between base and superstructure, if you like, the base of the nationalist movements uh, in the United States and in Europe uh, are these people, again, who have been left behind by globalization. The issues around which they are mobilized are not necessarily economic. They are trade. Trade is very important. But immigration, refugees, uh, the culture shock uh, to, again, a, an existing way of life plays an enormous role. So really, you have to put the two together. Uh, you can't say, well, is it all economics or is it all culture? It's both. Talk a little bit about how Trump has exploited this in in a pretty effective way and the impact that it's had not only on on him exploiting it, but the way in which it has exacerbated the problem. Well, uh, again, I think that, you you know, I really still can't tell about Trump's trade policies. There's something good might come out of them. Uh, with, with immigration, it's just mostly been really demagoguery and uh, you know, increasing the hostilities in our country. And he really hasn't done anything about what are real problems, which is an oversupply of uh, unskilled and lower skilled labor that makes it very, very, very hard to bring up wages or to unionize. So that, that, you know, that's, a, that's a real problem, but that's not being addressed. That has to be addressed through some change in the priorities about immigration, through bringing the 12 million into the uh, 12 million undocumented back into the society uh, so they're not so easily exploitable by a whole range of men. Not doing that. Mostly it's, the, it's still the Mexican rapist. Mostly it's still uh, politics. I, I, just, I was struck by my, my old state of Illinois that Bruce Rauner is, the Republican governor, and uh, he's losing in the polls. And so his latest appeal is that uh, that the main source of crime in Chicago is illegal immigrants. You know, it's just just nonsense. But again, it's 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 uh, getting getting trying to get the ba- base uh, riled up. So uh, uh, again, there's real problems to be addressed. But I don't uh, feel, for the most part, that 
Trump is is addressing them. I mean, you can go to the manufacturing also if you want. I'll just say one more thing about that. Um, We're not going to bring back coal mines or, or, you know, T-shirts and things like that. But there is a problem with advanced manufacturing, Uh, computers, 3D printing, all this kind of thing that the United States does have to keep up with in the world. I'm not sure if Trump is sensitive to that. The, the, the stuff to encourage uh, coal, the utilities to use coal, is just going to poison the country. It's not going to bring up back a lot of jobs. So, uh, again, I think a lot of what he's doing is addressing real problems, but doing it uh, in, in, a, in either, a, either both a bigoted and a harmful way. Talk about the ways in which it, it really creates a greater demand almost for authoritarianism. Well, you know, I'm not, again, I'm I'm not sure about that. I mean, you know, in Europe, for instance, you do get in Eastern Europe a move toward authoritarianism uh, in Poland and Hungary and some Slovakia, some of the other countries. And those are countries that don't have a long democratic past that we have. Um, you you get with Trump uh, certainly among his base a kind of hero worship, but you know we had that with Franklin Roosevelt too. I mean, people loved Roosevelt. Uh, we had it with John Kennedy. I mean, how many people were really worried about even a- after Kennedy died of his old, all his sexual exploits? I mean, he was a hero, so. Again, I, I'm not sure if that that uh, tendency toward hero, hero worship that is uh, really at the heart of the uh, you know at the heart of the problem in America. I don't. I'm not worried yet about um, a, a real threat to our democracy. What about the degree to which this nationalism is taking place, not just here in America, but as you've talked about, it's happening in countries all over the world which is feeding into an even greater us-versus-them situation. Well, yeah, that's true. And, you know, but there's completely different reasons in uh, different places. And uh, uh, the the places that are similar in respect to us are uh, uh, Western Europe. And uh, Western Europe, you get the same kind of concentration of the right-wing nationalist appeal in the in the small towns and places like that that have been left behind by globalization northeast uh, england northern france um you know if you had a vote within austria the uh probably you know maybe even the greens would would win but it's all the towns around there uh in warsaw too it's not warsaw it's the smaller towns around so the base is very similar. I think in Europe, um, the economic issues, there's no trade is not a big issue in Europe the way it is in the United States. Um, the EU as a super, supranational institution is, and refugees uh, are an enormous issue because the issue of cultural issues about immigration become fused with the threat of terrorism. And that just completely blows things up. I mean, that's extremely important in the United States, too, but, but you know, we, we, even more so uh, in Europe. So you, you have both a problem of cultural integration plus the idea that, that one of these people 
you know, won't just eat the wrong kind of um, meat, uh, but they'll also might blow up a shopping mall or, you know, uh, a public place. So that's the, I mean, that's really what, what uh, makes it different. You know, if you talk about something like Russia, Russia, again, uh, a past that's very rooted in nationalism and that to some extent in the 90s, you see a reaction to the spread of NATO uh, from the West to the East, uh, which we initially in George H.W. Bush's uh, administration promised uh, Gorbachev uh, would not happen and has revived a lot of nationalism. I mean, I think I think the uh, ascendancy of Putin is is no accident. Chinese always nationalist. Japanese also. Koreans. These those are countries that uh, you know have had have had a long past of it, and to a great extent have always been uh, rivals and uh, at one time colonial overlords of each other. Does this increase in nationalism throughout the world set the stage for for greater potential conflict? Oh, sure, but you know you can't. Um, yeah, I, I can't. I couldn't say where it's going to happen. I mean, there's certainly problems in in the South China Sea. I mean, the biggest uh, conflicts have been in the Middle East and South. South Asia, and those have a, a you know a, hist- uh, a, a a much longer history of you know a hundred years, exacerbated by uh, George W. Bush's uh, decision to uh, invade Iraq, which was like uh, you know again putting a bomb in the middle of the global shop- shopping mall, and just we continue to suffer from the repercussions of that. Of course, it's the opposite of what globalization was supposed to do and, and arguably did to a certain degree, which was to make the world safer, make it more peaceful, that countries that were trading with each other, that were doing business with each other, were less likely to go to war with each other. Yes, that's right, and that there wouldn't be economic crisis and so on and so on. It, we are, we're living in the midst of a great disillusionment about this period of utopianism in the, in the 90s. Do you think that we have the ability to come together with respect to both sides, right and left, with regards to trying to find the right level of nationalism today? Oh, you know, I, I don't, ability, I don't know. I have my own ideas of of how the Democrats might do it, but it's not—it's uh, it, not immediately in the offing. I, uh, we'll have to look towards 2020 and see if there is a candidate uh, on the—you know—my my side is is the left uh, who can appeal to the left behind, who can try to bring back the kind of majorities that we had before in the country that are more bottom and middle than what we have in the Democrats, which is more bottom and sort of upper middle with the middle, out of the middle left out. John Judas, his book is The Nationalist Revival, Trade, Immigration, and the Revolt Against Globalization. John, I thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure. Thank you.